It's uh, an interesting thing. If you go back to the New Testament, you see Jesus, uh, as well as Paul, dealing with issues of the day. And you, you begin to realize that spiritual things uh, show up and kind of are contextualized in the day-to-day realities of life, the, the politics of life, uh, the interactions, the, the latest pop culture, the latest headline news. Uh, if, it's a, if it's an earthquake somewhere, we ask questions about God's sovereignty with regard to nature or the problem of suffering. If we uh, are dealing with war or conflict that way, we ask uh, questions about what is it going to look like when, when there's really peace or what will heaven be like when there's no more war. And when we deal with issues of death and dying, we, we ask spiritual questions too. And the spiritual stuff shows up all throughout the, the day-to-day discourse of life. And uh, so it's, it's hard. Sometimes we get a little too much into talking about the latest headline news that we don't back out and get the context of some of the bigger spiritual realities. Other times we can be so abstract that we never really jump into the headline news and, and it's hard to take or apply what we're learning or what we're talking about to the day-to-day uh, life and discourse. And um, So it's, a, it's an interesting balance, an interesting, ten, uh, interesting tension. Uh, and we're talking about, for the next two weeks, heaven and hell. And it's something that kind of came up a bunch of months ago because there was a, a New York Times best-selling book that came out that really asked a lot of questions about heaven and hell and, and kind of created a firestorm of controversy in the church, uh, both pro and con. And uh, my first reaction to things like that usually is uh, it's too much drama for me. Like I just, just can't handle all the drama. Um, why can't we all just get along kind of a thing. But, but the the desire for me was to give it enough time and to kind of come back and talk at it at the level of ideas. Usually the heat will die down and you can come to the conversation a little bit more dispassionately and see what it is that we can learn. Does that make sense? So we wanted to kind of come and talk about heaven and hell and it's not a conversation about Rob Bell's book. It's not even a conversation about Francis Chan's book uh, which was kind of spawned in response to it. That, that just came out this week, but it's a conversation about really weighty matters that have to do with eternal destiny, that have to do with the tenets of the Christian faith, and we want to really be able to wrestle with those and, and see what we can learn and what we're supposed to be thinking. So we're going to do that for the next two weeks, and I want to just begin by um, looking at logic and and kind of framing something for us, but If you write this down or kind of follow along with me here, this is a very simple, logical formula. And let me just make one up. But um, if we say Susie, we don't say Susie. There we go. If we say Susie has brown hair, that's a premise. And then if we say that all girls who have brown hair are brunettes, it's another premise. And then we can draw from that the conclusion that Susie is a brunette. Logical? Okay. This is a a logical formula, a logical equation, a logical argument where it has two premises and the conclusion follows from the premise. Right? When we're looking at arguments, the ones that are wrong, that are easiest to spot, are usually the ones where the conclusion doesn't follow from the premises. Okay? So somewhere around junior high or high school, you begin to, to realize when something just doesn't follow. Does that make sense? Like, you said this, you said that, then you made this assertion, and I, well, I don't really see how that follows. Does that make sense? That's kind of the easiest thing, and I think we're familiar with that. When someone says something, we just don't know how they got there. It doesn't make sense. 
what's harder to discern, and this is usually where philosophy comes in, is when the conclusion follows from the premises, and the premises look logical, or they look rational, they look, um, they look like they could be true or should be true, but one of the premises happens to not be true. Okay? In this little logical formula, the conclusion follows, if Susie has brown hair and all girls who have brown hair are referred to as brunettes, then, then Susie is a brunette. The, it all kind of looks on the surface really good, but what if Susie doesn't really have brown hair? Then the conclusion doesn't follow anymore, right? And so sometimes when we look at the argument, it all seems so nice and clean and pretty that we forget to ask the question, well, what color do, does, what color hair does Susie really have? Is it blonde or is it, is it black? What, what color is it? And so when looking at arguments, you really have to analyze or scrutinize the premises to find out whether you actually agree with all the premises in an argument, and then you can decide whether the, con- the conclusion is actually valid. Rob Bell wrote a book, and he wrote a book that comes at the question of heaven and hell, and because it comes at the question of heaven and hell, it also therefore comes at the question of salvation, because the doctrine of salvation is really tied with the questions of heaven and hell and eternal destiny. And Rob, in this book, comes forward and puts out arguments and basically is arguing for the conclusion that maybe we've seen this thing a little bit too inclusively or too narrow. Uh, that Christians tend to be very narrow and we think that uh, only Christians are going to get to heaven and, and we want to kind of define it that way. But what if actually uh, the truth is that everybody will eventually get to heaven um, through Christ? That whether they know it or not, God's kind of reconciling of everything is going to bring them back to a position over here, and God's going to do that through Jesus Christ. But this whole idea of separating out those who are going to hell for eternity and those who are going to heaven, maybe that's just not what's right. Okay. Now what you begin to realize, and the reason we would have this conversation, is that unity depends on a de- degree of like-mindedness. Unity depends on a degree of like-mindedness. Just bring up politics and you'll see what I mean. If, if you can't agree to something... It's really difficult to have unity. Christians have found unity around the doctrines of salvation, the doctrines of heaven and hell, the doctrines of Jesus Christ, why we call ourselves Christians. That There's certain doctrines or tenets in Scripture that we've held in common, and, and being like-minded about those has allowed us to have a certain degree of unity. Does that make sense? The firestorm regarding Rob Bell's book is, one, a reaction to the idea that, hey, if, if what Rob is saying here is not true, it's just out and out uh, heresy if, if what he's saying is not true. Um, secondly, our foundation from which we find our unity, our like-mindedness, is grounded in, in, in kind of the belief or the authority behind some of these basic Christian beliefs. And so if you're saying that we, we have those wrong or we don't understand any of this stuff down here, then how in the world do we really have uh, a degree of unity that we kind of come around as Christians? Does that make sense? Okay. My problem with Rob Bell's book is not Rob Bell's book. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't get into the hype or the, uh, the craze of some of these things and vilify people. I don't think that's helpful. Okay, if you disagree with what someone's writing, that doesn't make them malicious or evil. Okay? It means that you disagree with something that they're asserting. They have a right to assert it. Okay? It doesn't make them malicious just because they're writing it out. Okay? I don't have a problem with Rob Bell's book. I don't have a problem with Rob Bell. What I have a problem with are Rob Bell's arguments. I have a problem with Rob Bell's arguments. Rob Bell puts out a lot of simple arguments. He says, Susie has brown hair. If you have brown hair, then you're a brunette. Therefore, Susie's a brunette. He goes to scriptures and wants to say, 
uh, God is going to save all people because look at this verse. Or eternity really isn't eternity, it's just a period of time. Or punishment, we're going to look at this next week, isn't really punishment, it's actually pruning, which is different than punishment, it's more of a rehabilitation. Um, and Rob makes these arguments, he uses Hebrew language, uh, he quotes a lot of scriptures, kind of saying, hey, all of these scriptures back what I'm saying, and then even brings in a host of church figures, Augustine and Luther and others, and saying, hey, on this point, they agree with me. And as you read it, it is one of the most unbelievably persuasive examples of rhetoric that I've ever run across. Do you guys know what rhetoric is? Um, have you guys ever heard the word sophistry? Back in ancient Greece where skepticism was a big thing, you would actually have uh, people trained in rhetoric that would just be like professional debaters. You know, you take this side of the argument, I'll take this side of the argument, and you just debate it. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. You just, you're kind of using rhetorical devices to try and win an argument regardless of its truth. Does that make sense? Uh, there's an art form of persuasion that, that involves the use of language, rhetoric, that can be incredibly powerful. Rob Bell's book is one of the, the most unbelievable examples of rhetoric that I've ever run across. It is incredibly persuasive. Um, Susie has brown hair, and if, if she has brown hair, then brunettes have brown hair, so Susie, Susie's a brunette. It just is very matter-of-fact, very logical-sounding. The problem, however, is if you, if you begin to look up some of the verses that Rob Bell quotes, they're out of context. Uh, Susie doesn't have brown hair, and that verse doesn't say that. And if you look up the Hebrew, you find that Rob Bell uses the noun when it's actually a verb in Scripture, and then doesn't use a straightforward lexicon for what the definition is, but finds an obscure reference to a, a Hebrew meaning, I, you, you begin to find that what seems so clear and, and strong and confident really is, is, uh, is just feet firmly planted in midair on some of these things. So my, my frustration with the book has nothing to do with Rob or Rob writing a book or that I disagree with the book. My frustration with, with Rob Bell's book is that the arguments are offensive to me. Not because of the conclusion, but because the premises aren't grounded in anything. They purport to be grounded in Scripture, but when you go check them against Scripture, it, there's barely even an effort to, to make any of it actually fit context. I think that's a really dangerous thing because if we're not arguing for truth and we're not arguing for reason, then we're engaging just in some exercise of, of uh, opinion. Uh, and I find that dangerous. Um, Ronald Reagan said this once upon a time, uh, and I'm not a conservative or a liberal. Um, I'm an independent because uh, I live in Bend. That's just what you are, right, if you live in Bend? Um, so this isn't against liberal, but this is what Reagan said. He says, the trouble with our liberal friends is not that they're ignorant. It's just that they know so much that isn't so. Um, my problem with, 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 with Rob's book is not, again, Rob, or it's not the ability for him to write a book. It's not even um, that I don't enjoy dialoguing about ideas or meaningful things. It's just that so much of the biblical argument just isn't so. Susie doesn't really have brown hair. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about heaven today and a little bit more about hell next week. So we'll save kind of breaking down some of those arguments for then. But um, what I want to say in the outset is this. If we want to have meaningful, constructive dialogue, we have to learn how to find balance. And it's a hard thing for the Christian church to do. We're not really good at it. It says in Ecclesiastes that um, the man who fears God, the man or woman who fears God, avoids all extremes. It's good to hold on to the one and not let go of the other. That when you tend to kind of come into the middle and find the balanced position, 
it allows you the greatest degree of following truth in some sense wherever it goes. Rather than being on an extreme uh, and being jaded by your worldview or, or the argument or what it is you're trying to, to prove. C.S. Lewis wrote it this way in Mere Christianity. He says, uh, I found myself in a hall with competing theologies in different rooms on either side. And everybody's kind of vying for you to join that particular room so that you'd be in some sense on their team. And, and Lewis kind of says, you know, I kind of began to feel like uh, I should just stay in, in the hallway, what he called mere Christianity, so that I have the benefit of, of all the conversations, and I don't change from analyzing, wrestling, questioning, uh, exploring, arguing, etc., to just trying to prove one view. When you're in the hallway, you kind of have the benefit of the whole conversation, and your objective isn't just trying to win kind of the argument. So I, uh, I think we want to come to balanced positions on this. And I think when we do that, we want to come to, to a book like Rob Bell's fair-handed, and we want to open up our Bible. We want to check his arguments. We want to get a study Bible. We want to open that. We want to check those arguments as well. And at the end of the day, we want to evaluate it based on reason, based on its use of Scripture. And what we don't want to do is on the other extreme come in and just say, uh, you know, when we're sitting around doodling and we're bored, we're drawing Rob Bell with horns on his head, you know? It's, it's just not helpful to the dialogue or the discussion. Um, let's go ahead and open up, if you would, to John chapter 3. And we want to talk just about a couple things regarding, regarding heaven. Now, there's a lot of, heaven and hell is just a strange thing in our, in our mind. It's, the concept is very difficult, and we usually talk about it kind of as, as opposite extremes, talking about good and bad. Mark Twain is famous for saying, go to heaven for its climate, but go to hell for, for its company. You know, and I think that it kind of expresses how we feel sometimes of, really, here's these two things, and... Uh, heaven, what if I don't like worship songs and singing all the time or little fat babies flying around with wings and, and what if rock and roll music is in hell and maybe that would be more fun. I mean, but we just don't have a clear concept of what these things are because we're kind of grown up into a culture where they, they literally become metaphors for movies. You know, heaven can wait and things like that. So what we want to do is really begin to talk about what is heaven and then how do we know about heaven? We'll take the second question first. How do we know about heaven? Here we go in John chapter 3. And Jesus says something absolutely fascinating to Nicodemus. And he says this in verse 12, chapter 3, verse 12. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? I've spoken to you of earthly things, yet you don't believe. And if you can't believe me about things in day-to-day life, earthly things, then how are you going to believe my testimony if I start talking about heaven that you can't see, that's, that's not right in front of you? It's a fascinating comment. And Jesus goes on to say this. He says this, No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. And then we get a famous verse here. It says this, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. And whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. It's fascinating how we treat salvation. Now, here's one of the things I love about Rob Bell's book, (laughs) that a lot of his, his frustrations are my frustrations. That we do have this thin kind of religious view of salvation. We, we flippantly kind of throw out, say this formula, and we'll say that you're saved. And, 
and nothing else matters, and you kind of, the magic formula has been spoken, and uh, the utterance has been made, and we've really spiritualized salvation and ripped it out of the context of anything else that goes on when Scripture talks about salvation, the relationship, the idea of being redeemed, the idea of being born again, the idea of being made new, and the fact that not all who uh, cry on Jesus' name truly are saved. Jesus says, man, there's a lot of people who do things in my name, and I'm going to say to them, I don't know you. And he's going to say um, a lot of things about to his disciples that who's really saved, you're not going to know that. That, that don't go around trying to, to be the salvation police and figure it out because you're going to get it wrong. Okay? So here's what salvation is, but your ability to necessarily know it with everybody is, is incredibly limited. Your ability to know it in yourself, and we, over, oh, we overplay assurance, and I'm treading on hallowed ground here. I'm, I'm a ridiculously conservative um, person in regards to doctrine. But assurance of salvation is a doctrine that says that you know once you're saved, you can always be saved. But you get to 1 John and you get to Peter and you read verses that say, if you do these things, you will gain a greater, what? Assurance. A greater confidence in your standing or in your relationship with God. The, the people like Wesley and even Jonathan Edwards, you go back a couple hundred years, these amazing figures would have times where they would wrestle with whether or not they were actually saved. It's not something that modern Christianity has a, as a part of our conversation. But, but there was always this conversation, this dialogue about, um, yeah, if you're truly saved, then you are saved. But how do I know that I am saved? And, we, and people would wrestle with that, and then they would go to text, and they'd say, man, if you're manifesting the, the fruit of the Spirit, and it shows that God's Spirit is alive in you, and, and these things are happening, there's a greater confidence that you gain in your standing before God. And you get this idea that our confidence in our salvation is a degreed property. Degreed. You understand it happens in degrees. And we come at it sometimes as if it's a light switch. It's either or. Now, if you are saved, then you are saved. Okay? Eternal security. Your ability to know that with absolute certainty is a degreed property. Your confidence in that is a degreed property. Does that make sense? So there's some difficult, weighty things, and Rob brings some of these things up. Uh, he also brings up and, and wants to argue that some people, not knowing Christ, will be saved through Christ. Now, that's a, that's a thing that typical Christianity would freak out about. What do you mean that somebody's going to be saved even though they, they didn't claim Jesus or didn't know Jesus or anything like that. What do you mean? And that's a typical thing we freak out. Now, Rob goes all the way to the extreme of literally saying that the whole earth, that all people, all who have ever lived, might just come through that kind of same channel. And that's an extreme, a huge extreme. That's why people um, put the label of universalist on them. Universalist simply means that all will be saved. And it really empties out hell. I mean, hell is not going to ultimately have anybody in it. It's going to be emptied out. Everybody's going to end up heaven. That's what universalism means, okay? Now, I'm not a universalist. However, I do believe that God does save people without knowing Christ through the power of Christ's death on the cross. What does that look like? Is our theology... Is our theology correct enough to where we can account for people who have a mental retardation uh, that wouldn't have the ability to even cognitively understand who Jesus is? Or infants who die literally before they're even verbal? Do we have a, a, a theology that understands that God is sovereign, that God saves sinners? And that the, the primary mechanism by which he does it are sinners repenting of their sin and accepting this offer that's made through Jesus Christ. However, in a fallen and broken world, that ability at a cognitive level to 
place your faith in God, that ability does not exist with all people equally. And that our God in his sovereignty can can save or pour out his compassion on those people because Jesus has died and made atonement for sins. And if God so chooses, he can take that infant or he can take that person with, with some sort of a handicap and he can save them through Jesus' death on the cross. Absolutely, I believe that. Absolutely, I believe that. Am I a universalist? No, because I believe that some people reject Christ's salvation, some people turn away, that God will punish some people, and that heaven will have people in it, and that it won't be completely emptied out. Why do I believe that? Um, Because like Nietzsche said, uh, I'm a Christian who likes to be vindictive. Nietzsche called Christians tarantulas. In his book, um, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, he he saw that Christians were life negators, and they kind of had this negative view on life and everybody else was having fun except for them and so they would kind of always do this well you know what you're going to get yours you're going to get yours it's coming god will judge you um and and us these miserable frowning christians we're going to be vindicated and then we're going to scoff at you you know that was nietzsche's view of christianity um, so do I believe in a literal hell because I want to, I, I mean, somebody bullied me in second grade and I, I want to believe that they're going to be in hell for eternity, being tormented? Not at all. Um, there's nothing about me that wants to believe in hell. It's, that's really, I think, what's driving, driving Rob's book, is that the doctrine of hell is not something that anyone wants to believe in. I think if you're a compassionate human being. But it's something that Scripture teaches. And our Christian views are always grounded in Scripture. Because how do we know about heaven? How do we know about hell? What are we going to learn about salvation if it's not just our own opinions? It's what's grounded in Scripture. And so there's two ways of looking at Scripture, what's called a high view and a low view. Low view is it's just a, a fancy book. Like any book that's been around several thousand years, it's a great religious work. High view believes that it's the word of God, it's truth, it's been sent that we might believe in it, that we might come to know God through its testimony. Um, this church, myself, the elders, we have a high view of Scripture. If you have a low view of Scripture, that's fine. You can be a part of Antioch, but the leadership of this church trusts and believes in the authority of Scripture for informing us of doctrine and truth. And so, regardless of whether I like the idea of hell or not, Scripture, and we're going to talk a little bit about that next week, talks about hell. And so we, we build that into our theology and we try to understand how a just God um, works His justice out as well as His love and what that really looks like. But we ground our understanding of these things in Scripture, high view of Scripture, low view of Scripture. It's fascinating. Um, Friedrich Schleiermacher in the 1800s brought about what was called German higher criticism. Uh, That process led to the emergence, that along with uh, evolution, 1859 and Darwin, and and these things kind of working together, led to a liberalizing of theology in the church in the late 1800s, the early 1900s. Um, which led to a group of theologians writing over the the course of five years about 90 essays, which were called the Fundamentals. Okay? Were published, I think, in 12 volumes, about 90 essays, and were done in the teens, uh, right right about the time of World War I, the advent of World War I. And these, these essays on the fundamentals, what are the fundamental tenets of Orthodox or historic Christianity, uh, are partly what drove the advent of the name fundamentalism, okay? Uh, fundamentalism means something kind of in its own now, I mean, just an extreme kind of black and whiteness or whatever, but fundamentalism really came from the fundamentals that, that people were saying, we're not going to just begin to make up our own theology, we're going to ground ourselves on these fundamentals that we get from Scripture. The crazy thing about the liberalization of theology is when you begin to say that this book isn't in some sense of God or true or, or um, 
given to us by which we're, we're to know God or know theology, you begin to look skeptically on things like heaven. Well, I mean, how would some book know anything about what happens after death? And if you begin to look skeptically on heaven, then you begin to come to doctrines of salvation and say, well, do these things really matter? And you begin to look skeptically on doctrines of salvation, and then you back up even more and say, um, boy, there's a lot here in this Bible that we don't really know uh, whether it matters or not, or whether we should really believe it, or it's awkward to believe it. So what's just the common ground here that we can find? And what you begin to do is you, you reduce it down to the ethics, uh, namely the Sermon on the Mount. And then Christianity become, becomes just literally a religion that I identify with culturally, because um, I grew up that way and, and I'm a religious person, but really the practice of this and my beliefs are really summed up in the ethics of Jesus and then working that out. And pretty soon any kind of truth or any kind of historic Christianity gets lost and it's this slippery slope when you move from a high view of Scripture to a low view of Scripture. So this church, we have a high view of Scripture. And Jesus brings, I think, some of this up when he says in John 3... He says, I talk to you about earthly things. And when he says earthly, what was he actually talking about, which is fascinating? He was talking about salvation. He had just gotten done talking to Nicodemus about this whole idea of born again. This phrase born again that came on big in the 19, uh, 1976 with Chuck Colson's book, Born Again. And with the first presidential candidate uh, ever to use those phrase about, that phrase about himself, which was, uh, anybody know, 76? Jimmy Carter, in a Playboy interview, said he was born again Christian. That one was free. Um, the, but Jesus is taught what we would call the heart of spiritual matters. Salvation and being born again, right? This relationship with God where, whereby we're kind of reconciled and redeemed. Jesus is talking about this. And then he goes on and says to Nicodemus, if you can't trust me or believe me about earthly matters how are you going to believe me when i talk about heavenly matters that's fascinating why do we usually talk about salvation in reference to heaven jesus came to 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 set the captives free to take the lost people of israel to restore them to buy them back to bring them into relationship to reconcile them with god as an outworking of that it, it implies or leads into heaven. But Jesus' theology was so much more robust than ours. Salvation wasn't just about how you get to heaven. C.S. Lewis says that heaven holds nothing that a mercenary heart would desire. Mercenary heart. You don't fight this battle because you care. You fight it because you're getting money from somewhere, right? The Swiss mercenaries in the 1500s. I, I don't have any political stake in this, but the Pope or somebody's paying me. I want, I want the money. And C.S. Lewis is saying a mercenary heart, someone that doesn't want the relationship with God in heaven or what heaven really has to offer, they just want the reward in some sense, then there's nothing in heaven that a mercenary heart would desire because heaven is the culmination of this relationship we have with God. So Jesus is talking about salvation in a very real and earthy context about earthly things. He's like, man, I have come. I've come to help uh, restore this, this divide. I'm going to be the high priest. I'm going to be the shepherd, the good shepherd. I'm going to lead my people. The, the word used for them is going to be health. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full, John 10.10. 10. And Jesus is saying, I'm talking to you of these things. And you're a teacher in the nation of Israel, Nicodemus. How do you not know these things? And if you can't go with me here, then how are you going to believe me when I start talking about stuff about heaven? And it's a fascinating, fascinating, fascinating thing about how we would learn about heaven. Let's just look at this real quick. I want to make a distinction, and it's this. There's first-person knowledge. There's third-person knowledge. First-person knowledge is I know it by experience. I'm aware of my own emotions, I'm aware of my own feelings, I'm aware of my own thoughts, and, and I have privileged access to my emotional states. First person, right? I experience it. Third person 
is the language of science. I can see objectively what's going on. I can see your body language. Uh, I, I could cut open and, and hook up nodes to your brains, and I would see which C fibers are firing, uh, which, which areas of your brain are active. Like I could, I could study that, and I could map it out, but I wouldn't really know what it felt like for you in that moment to be experiencing those things. Does that make sense? Third-person, cold, objective language. How do we usually come at religion? Okay. A lot of us come at it first person. So what does worship become about, singing songs become about, when you're coming at it from a first person standpoint? It becomes about, um, I really like how this makes me feel. It's sloppy uh, sentimentality. It's emotionalism. It's, uh, the word really is spirituality. It's about me and my spiritual experiences. What about on this side? I know a lot of people like this. What does religion become about? Doctrine, the law, the intellectual side of it. It, it becomes about things that you can put on paper in between people and, and debate. Jesus is saying something really fascinating here. He brings in this concept. What's second person knowledge? We don't talk about it usually in society, but what we begin to find out is a lot of religion, the problem of evil and the answer to that really rests on second-person knowledge. What does God do with Job? God takes Job, does he give him a third-person account of why he's justified that there's evil and suffering in the world? Does he change Job's first-person experience of his pain and his suffering? ultimately, but not when they're having their great kind of debate, right? So what really actually happens between Job and God that makes Job back up and say, I spoke too soon, I spoke of things too wonderful for me, I'm sorry. What happened? Relationship is what happened. Second person is about your knowledge derived through relationship. It's a degree of, it's, it's where intuition comes into play. Uh, it's where the people that you're friends with and knowing how they feel or knowing what they think or knowing what the felt quality of that relationship is like um, and the bond that exists between two things, it's second person knowledge. And what God came in and said to Job was, I'm in charge, I'm in control, this is who I am. And Job says, thanks for the reminder. I'd forgotten. Um, Please forgive me, I'll, I'll, I'll go back up now. Jesus is saying something really fascinating. How do we know about heaven and the Father? Is he giving us a third-person justification of what God is like? Is he saying, look, reach inside yourself and, and dig out your spiritual feelings and you'll know what God is like? What he's actually saying is there's one who came from heaven who was with the Father. And when you have this relationship with me, when we enter into a relationship and we're able to talk about these things, okay, through second-person knowledge, through, through your experience of me, you're going to now know what? The Father. So let's turn to John 14, if you would. It's another famous passage, but it'll shed more light on what we're talking about here. John 14. I think we've got it up on the screen. Uh, but in John 14, 2, Jesus says this. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I am going there to prepare a place for you. I've built trust. You trust me with earthly things. Now I'm going to talk to you about heavenly things. I'm going there to prepare a place 
do you still trust me? Has my trust been built up? Have I earned your trust such that when I go and talk about heavenly things now, you go, I can extrapolate out and I believe you. But so Jesus is saying, look, I'm talking about heavenly things now. And Thomas says, Lord, uh, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Like, I want to end up with you in your father's house. You're saying you're going to go prepare a place. You're going to go get the barbecue started. And so when we show up, it's going to be a great barbecue. But, but what, where, what's the directions? I need a map. How am I going to find the barbecue? How am I going to end up where you're at? How am I going to get there? And it's a very logical question. Jesus says this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. And he continues on this way. Philip says, show us the Father. Show us the Father. Every person I've ever met that's a skeptic, this is their heart cry. Just put a plane in the sky and, and write it on the sky. Isn't that our greatest desire? Just show us the Father. Jesus answers and says, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And how can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? And the words that I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And he continues on and says, that his followers will ask things in his name and that we will do greater things than even Christ has done, that he's going to empower his followers on this earth um, to continue on his work. A couple thoughts real quick. Jesus says, I'm going to prepare, uh, prepare a place for you. My father's house has many rooms. You're coming from a patriarchal culture patriarchal culture, it doesn't look like your typical American family where you have a bedroom door from a kid and it says, do not disturb on it. My daughter, I bought her this thing, says, Sarah, princess sleeps here, do not disturb, right? Uh, that's the American view of rooms. When you have a room, it's like mom and dad, this is off limits. It's, it's independent, it's in isolation. When you have a patriarchal society where the patriarch literally is the benefactor to have all of these people living on his land and he is taking care of them at an economic level. When, when we have this picture and Jesus says, and there's many rooms, there's room for you. The predominant idea here is not one of place, but one of relationship. Do you understand that? The primary idea here is that you get to go be with God. You get to be with them and that God is going to care for you. It's not this idea that heaven is, man, am I going to like my bedroom in heaven? It's that when we get to heaven, it's the outworking, it's the extension of being born again into this relationship. We care about this relationship. We're not mercenary. When we think of heaven, it's about being unified with God and the fullness of this whole picture, being saved, and we desire it for what it is itself, not just some external reward. So Jesus is saying these things, but he's saying, how are you going to know this? How are you going to know that I'm the way? How are you going to know who God is, where God is, what God looks like? He's saying, in your relationship with me. So salvation, this relationship we have as Christians with Jesus Christ, where he's our Lord, this relationship is crucial to us understanding God as well as us understanding heaven. Now, I... Follow me here because I think this is the most important thing I've said in years. The absolutely foundational aspect of Christianity that gets missed in church and in our culture so much is we come in either here or we come in either here when the whole idea is this relationship here. Why do Christians not read their Bibles anymore? I mean, statistically, my generation. Why do we not talk about things like a quiet time anymore? Why do we not engage in spiritual disciplines like solitude and fasting? 
the reason is because we've put the religion on the extremes. And we've got relig- uh, religion over here with third person. And we've got spirituality over here with first person. And that's, that's the conversation. So we either come at Christianity just looking for a spiritual experience or we come at it looking for religion and we don't really understand that the whole idea here is relationship. And so everything should be driving towards that. When you wake up in the morning, when you go to bed at night and you're praying by yourself or you're praying with your kids, when you pray before your meal at dinner or lunch, when you go on prayer retreats, when you walk through the woods, when you open up your Bible, when you engage in the discipline of church or community and you come here with the Spirit of God in you and you're looking at it and you're saying, we are going to collectively know God partly through how we show God to each other, partly how we invite something to happen spiritually while we're here where there's a content and a relationship going on. Worship, if it's nothing more than this, is just prayer set to music. The whole Psalms are that. It's just prayer set to music. And so the whole of our Christianity should be coming to Christ and saying, I just desire to know you. I hunger to know you. I want to know you more. I believe, but help my unbelief. And so we're we're hungering for the thing that says when we someday get to heaven, Jesus is going to look at us, and it it doesn't matter how much we know about doctrine or how smart we are or how sentimental we are, what really matters is that Jesus is going to look at us and say, I know you. I know you. You're that guy, you're that gal who, who fought hard to know me, who was willing to sacrifice anything for me, who cared about the people that I cared about, even when you literally had to give away your life and kill selfishness. I know you. All of our our conversations should be wrapped up in this idea of second-person knowledge. You don't need me. Um, Brandon's much cooler than me. You don't need Brandon. Justin has his good days and bad days. I don't know how to talk about that. You don't need Justin. You need Christ. You need a relationship with Christ. This is earthly. Salvation begins right here And right now, that's the crazy thing about eternal life, is when you are in Christ, eternal life doesn't begin when you die. When does it begin? It begins when you're born again. You are born again with imperishable seed. Your eternal life begins on earth and carries you into heaven. It begins in you being restored to to God in that relationship now that will come to full fruition later. If we don't believe Jesus with earthly things, if we're not going to pray to him and see him answer prayer, if we're not going to throw our our troubles on him and see him care about our troubles, if we're not going to wrestle with our doubts with Christ and see him remove those doubts or speak into those doubts if we can't believe him with earthly things how are we going to have a high view or any degree of confidence when we start talking about heavenly things i think the conversation about heaven doesn't begin with a conversation about heaven it begins with a conversation about our relationship with the person of jesus christ when he said he's the way he didn't mean it here See, this is the great stumbling block, right? We always want to treat Jesus as if he's some bridge or some road, some third-person object. When Jesus says, man, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he is saying me in relationship with me, through me, relation. Let's know each other. What would it look like if we put that in second-person language? Come to me. I am the good shepherd. Um, We're going to close in prayer. The band's going to come out, and they're going to sing a song about Be Thou My Vision, one of my favorite hymns. We can sing this looking for an experience. 
we can sing this looking at the theology in the, in the song, or we can sing this as a prayer saying, Christ, you and you, I, I need you. I need that relationship. I need you to guide me. I need you to be my shepherd. I will follow you. I will seek to know the things I know spiritually through you. I'm hungry. I'm tired. I'm depressed. We got health issues. I got doubts. We got financial things. Man, I got the pressure of being a parent, which can just kill you. I need you to speak into that. I need to know what you think about that. I need the reassurance that just comes from your presence being with me. So when Jesus says, I'm going to go, but I will be with you, that there's something really important that, that the whole of this second person experience, the relationship with Christ, is not some crazy thing out there. It's the thing that grounds everything in our walk by faith. So I'm going to ask you to do something that I've, I don't know that I've ever done at Antioch. Um, but if you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've never literally said, okay, I'm just going to throw it all off here. Christ, I want you. I want your offer of salvation. I want that relationship. That matters more to me than anything else. I want you to make me do, forgive my sins, reintroduce me to God in a way that, that never could happen without you. Um, then I just want you to stand up in full view of everyone else. We're doing baptism in two weeks. When people say, I want you, I want you God, I want you Jesus Christ, it's a public thing. It's a new day in your life. And so um, the band's gonna play for just a minute, but if you just literally want to take that offer and you wanna start new today, um, then stand up while they're playing and then in a little while, Justin's gonna have everybody stand up. Um, but let's not leave here this morning talking about anything other than the relationship with Christ and what we know through that. Um, let me pray for us in closing and stand, like I said, if you would. Lord Jesus, Father God, I pray that you would strip us of human things, our own ideas, our fears, our doubts, the politics of Christianity, the moralism of Christianity, the debilitating guilt and doubt that can come when we try and carry all this by ourselves. And I just pray that you would give us a relationship with you, Father. Jesus, that you would usher us into that relationship, making us new, helping us be born again of imperishable, eternal seed. We ask for that, we hunger for it, we invite it, and we commit it to you in Jesus' name.